0: Welcome to the Impact Nation's podcast, episode 5-3. This week, we continue our look at the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to study Matthew himself, actually, and learn why he wrote this book. We're also going to spend some time studying the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew. And then in about 35-40 minutes or so, we're going to sit right down here again and discuss some of your questions. So if you've got questions during the teaching, you can uh, type those into the comments if you're watching on YouTube Live. If you're listening later uh, during our audio podcast, feel free to email your questions in to podcast at impactnations.com. And we'll be sure to discuss those questions in the following episode.
1: Hi, Steve Stewart here, and uh, I'm glad to be with you again for this podcast series on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we, uh, we're we going into the third week. Last week, we were delighted to have uh, Dr. Brad Jerzak with us, really opening up what he called the Emmaus Way to Read Scripture, and uh, that was part of the foundation for that I wanted to lay for this whole series. Just to review for those of you who maybe missed the first week, although you can always go back and catch this on YouTube, um, why why am I studying Matthew and why therefore are we studying it? Matthew's gospel is the first and has been called the the single most important document. In the New Testament, Uh, for the first three centuries, uh, Matthew was the most highly revered, the most quoted gospel. It was taught to every new believer as as a manual, like a catechism for life uh, for anyone following the Jesus way. On a more personal level, uh, more than any other gospel, Matthew has been my model for ministry over these many decades now, versus a local pastor and now as we minister to the nations. Um, I just, again, I want to review a few things that I touched on. One is that we really need to approach Matthew not clinically, not analytically. That doesn't mean we don't look and examine and are careful, but primarily— uh, we approach it with a deep awareness of of the holiness of this gospel. Uh, I think a, a key to a greater understanding of the, this gospel is to enter it with a sense of awe. You know, some of us come from a tradition where, when the gospels are read on a Sunday, everyone stands. Um, it, it's not ritual; it's a it's a, a physical expression of a reality that that we're we're in really holy ground. Uh, particularly with the gospels, they're they're like the pinnacle. Um, one of the early church fathers, Christostom, I told two weeks ago, he he compares what coming into the gospel being read is is like an audience. They're talking and visiting, and then suddenly in comes someone uh, to read letters from the king, and there's a hush in the crowd. There's a great sense of uh, attentiveness and anticipation. Church fathers insisted, frankly, that what we are reading here are not Matthew's works, but God's words moving through him. My hope in this series is that we will see Matthew's gospel, um, we'll see an echo of, of the angel's invitation to John in the book of Revelation come up here. So we talked about holiness and I want us to continue to remember that as we go through this series. I talked a little bit about reading the scriptures and, uh, Brad took us a lot further, but let me just lay again, uh, through review a quick foundation. We, we live in a society that is incredibly, incredibly impacted by the worldview of the enlightenment, the, uh, 18th and 19th century view that that the only thing that matters were the things that could be sensed: see, hear, touch, feel. And um, for the first 1500 years, the Bible was uh, universally understood through a, a, a transcendent, a, a supernatural paradigm. But along comes the Enlightenment. And after about 100, 125 years, it starts to really affect um, biblical interpretation. And uh, the the method of reading it, again, analytical, uh, looking at it piece by piece, is is known as the historical critical method. And, and what it led to, I really believe, is... Uh, almost a two-dimensional reading that uh, they were searching out the the correct meaning of each word and uh, the historical uh, literary significance. And what we ended up with, I think, is a rather flat two-dimensional gospel. Uh, We read the Bible that way. You know, since the beginning of the Christian era, 2,000 years ago, the fathers insisted that this is a divine book and that God has put multiple, multiple layers of meaning to be found in every passage. Uh, the early church, for them, the Gospel of, of Matthew was not just a mere historical narrative, uh, but every part, every phrase was a Divine Chronicle of, of Revelation. Today, and those are the two main things I want to touch on, and now we go forward. Because today I'm continuing with the intro that I began two weeks ago. Uh, I'm really looking forward to next week when we start uh, Matthew chapter 1, um, from the very first words of chapter one, the gospel is being revealed. But before we go there, it's so important that since this is going to be a long journey of of months, I want to lay a solid foundation for all that is going to follow um, as we dig deeply. So I don't want to rush this. So, Today, some of you who love details and you like that background stuff, boy, you're just licking your chops. And others are saying, "Oh man, I want to get onto the gospel." And I understand both sides, but we really have to go. Uh, we we need to get a good, strong foundation uh, for all that we're going to have. It, it gives context, you know. For for the most much of the last hundred and fifty years or so. Um, the majority view that Matthew was written late in the first century or maybe even into the early second century and, and was not written by Matthew. Now, over the last 50 years, uh, scholarship is, is opening up. There's new sources, and, and it's much more common now to see a date somewhere in the, in the 60s written by Matthew himself. And the reason I'm going to take a few minutes on on authorship and dating is is because I want us to see that this is an eyewitness account. This is not carried down from one generation to the next. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't written fifty years, hundred years after the events, and and it was written from the perspective of what what Jesus, what Matthew was experiencing in walking with Jesus. Um, you know, after a lot of study this past many months on Matthew, a position that I've carried for 45 years has shifted, has changed. I've become convinced about the more traditional view of both the authorship and the date. Um and there's a bunch of reasons, and I want to share those with you, because even I got an email last week saying, well, why do you think Matthew was the real author, and why do you think it was written then? Well, let's go through a little bit of that. Um, during the first three centuries, Matthew's gospel was the most highly revered. It was also the most highly quoted. We see it through so much of early Christian writing. And, and moreover, the unanimous a uh, consensus of the church was that matthew was the first gospel written the church from the earliest days when they were the closest to when when huh, matthew was alive to when jesus was alive they said matthew matthew was the author um and you know there's a lot of evidence for this i think it's uh i think it's unambiguous to be honest with you um one of the really early church fathers, Ignatius. um, He talked about Matthew being written by Matthew all the way back to about 109. Irenaeus um, in the second century, in the 100s, he was the foremost scholar of his day. He was a Christian bishop and and no one rivaled his learning or depth of experience. He was, he was known universally among the church for this wisdom, this learning. And he said this, Matthew published a book of the gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church. Now, in terms of language, I think he did write it in Aramaic, which would be thought of as a dialect of, of the Hebrews. I think he wrote it in Aramaic, and then I think it was translated into Greek. Origen, a giant of the uh, second century, and um, he and going into the beginning of the third, so we're, we're in the late 100s and into the 200s, They say that Origen probably had access to the greatest Christian library in the world. Uh, I've been reading quite a bit of Origen lately, and um, his breadth of knowledge is wide, it's deep, and he had this to say about who wrote Matthew. The first gospel was written by Matthew, who was once a tax collector, but who afterwards became an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Here's another reason why I don't think the church just gathered some oral tradition and put Matthew's name on it. Matthew was a relatively obscure figure among the 12. If you were going to do that, wouldn't you you have picked uh, one of the prominent, prominent uh, disciples? So there's no reason why they would have chosen his name. Uh, one of the things that they say, well, how could Matthew have have known so much, known what he, he did? We're going to look at the discourses in a few minutes, the, the collection of teaching. How could he have got that so accurate? Well, two things. One, it, as I've said to you before, it's an oral tradition children grew up everybody learned by listening and they listened carefully and they had to speak it back they 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 learned and memorized that way secondly what was jesus ministry like it was an itinerant ministry he traveled from town to town and so matthew would have heard the same material uh, repeated many times <sighs> So, he, clearly, in my mind, he would have remembered, especially, oh, yeah, he's, he's telling that story about the parable of the sower, or, oh, yeah, the Beatitudes. Um, so, it was from Matthew's personal witness and memory that he wrote the gospel. I've become convinced. Um, it's interesting. One other point why I think it was Matthew, Eusebius, another early church father, he pointed out that Matthew made a point of highlighting that he had come to Christ and come into the band of disciples as, as a hated tax gatherer uh, whose life was built around greed and disloyalty. Uh, even when he's writing... Uh, in his gospel, and he's naming the 12 apostles. He just names them by their name until he gets to him. You know, it's Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer. I see in that evidence that that it was Matthew who wrote it. For years, I held the view that Mark— was the first gospel I think I've taught that as recently as a year year and a half ago that mark was the first gospel and that matthew uh was was written after mark and that's why he had so much uh so much of of mark in there but i think I think that that many 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 writers are now embracing this earlier date and they're saying that both matthew and mark drew from a common oral tradition but that of what jesus didn't said but they came from two different places as we just heard one of the church fathers say mark you may or may not know is in essence the gospel of peter mark uh, transcribed and was a follower of Peter. And it was Peter's remembrances, remember of these repeated itinerant sayings, uh, and, and the sayings were the same. So they, they were both ultimately drawing back to the source of Jesus. Um, I think that, uh, I think they were written, it's very likely, they were written independently, uh, but drawing from the same material. And and I think, contrary to what I used to think, I think Matthew could have been and probably was written before Mark. Um, and uh, he, he always, Matthew, in every 100%— of the listings of what's called the canon from the early days, Matthew's always number one. So if it wasn't the first written, why was this so? Okay, that's to get for the, the academic date and author geeks out there, of which I can be one, uh, that's, that's to get you your stuff. Now I want to move on, and, and as we look at, the, at Matthew's Gospel, what I want to look at purpose, I want to look at structure, I want to look at theme. Um, Although Matthew's gospel is an eyewitness account, he wrote it with a much broader purpose in mind. It's more than simply a narrative, and we're going to see this, how carefully structured it was put together. He's planned and constructed his gospel to declare and demonstrate the authenticity of Christianity. Uh, to show the centrality of Jesus in every aspect of Christian life and faith. One of the theologians that I have studied this last six months, and there's been a lot of them, is uh, an evangelical D.A. Carson. He's a a wonderful scholar. Uh, I think he's passed on now, but uh, he's helpful at this point. So I'm going to give you a, a few quotes from him. He says, Matthew's purpose at the broadest level is to demonstrate, A, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and we'll look at this next week, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Uh, Secondly, that the Messianic kingdom has been inaugurated by the life, ministry, death, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. That thirdly, this... This messianic reign is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. we're going to see that again and again. I told you the first week Matthew, by far more than any other gospel writer, would put Old Testament uh, quotes or allusions in and say, and this was to fulfill um, Matthew's purpose also had a had a church purpose because he's saying that the church constitutes both Jew and Gentile, all those. Who, who are the followers of Christ, you're all the true people of God, and, uh, and you the church witnesses to the gospel of the kingdom, to the world. <sighs> Matthew's gospel was written to instruct a young church, to provide material for evangelism, uh, to encourage believers in a hostile world and to inspire deeper faith in Jesus and a greater understanding of of his person and his work and his place in the history of God's story you know the the four writers of the gospels are commonly called the evangelists and i just think of that as a as i see that uh, one of his purposes was to provide material for evangelism. And now here, 2,000 years old, I, like countless others, when I have that wonderful opportunity to preach Christ out into the the nations, I am preaching Christ from the record of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And by the way, I find myself— uh, probably more preaching from Matthew for evangelism than anything else. So let's look at the structure. Stay with me today. I I, I know that this is kind of condensed, but I'm back to saying we need a strong foundation. Matthew, you know, the first multiple times i read it i just read it as a narrative and then this happened and this happened and this happened but over time i began to realize no he didn't just start at point a and go to point b he compiled this carefully structurally thematically um and and this structure is very, very deliberate. It helps us to understand the forward progression of his gospel, and we are certainly going to see that. There's there's points where his, his he announces in chapter four the kingdom of God, he inaugurates his his ministry, he he gathers uh late in chapter four, he begins to gather his first disciples. We see a progression. Um, there's this growing awareness of who is this because he's bigger and more powerful and more wonderful than they ever realized. Then we move to that pinnacle verse, Matthew 16, 16, when he says in 15, and who do you say I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And it moves beyond that to this revelation of what is about to take place at the cross it, there's a forward progression, a movement that is so clear in Matthew's gospel. So the, there's lots of different ways of defining the structure of this gospel, because it it's it's actually much more complex than it looks at first reading, and. Uh, no outline can be rigid. I've looked at a bunch of writers and commentaries and theologians, and everybody's got a different outlines, but it seems to me that there are some common things that I am very comfortable with. So I think the first part of his outline, really, uh, uh, of the structure is who he is. Jesus is, is the Messiah. And uh, starting in verse 1— up to chapter 4, verse 16. That's what this is about, establishing that he is the coming one, the Christ, the Messiah. And uh, his prologue, which we're going to see, is very, very detailed. And it provides rich material for meditation on the origin and nature of Messiah, a lot of very unique material found there. Secondly, besides his person, is his proclamation. And this is a big section. This goes from uh, the second half of chapter 4 uh, right through to Matthew sixteen twenty, right after Peter said, Thou art the Christ. And so in this section, we see Jesus' ministry, and it's set entirely in and around Galilee. And then until he announces right after Peter's proclamation, he says, "Okay, now it's time, and we're going to go to Jerusalem um, that journey he takes his time, Matthew does in chronicling that journey south and it, it it largely includes the training the further training of the of the disciples uh, there's a marvelous classic uh by um A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve. It's got to be 120 years old now, but it is a it's a wonderful book uh, that that really traces, and in fact it's been an influential book for me for 30 years, but it 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 really traces uh how deliberate Jesus was at this point in training the 12. And then the next thing is his suffering, his death and resurrection, and that, that takes us from when you start heading to Jerusalem until the end of the gospel. And, um, so like John, Matthew's very intentional. And I'll probably say this, who knows, dozens of times over the coming months, but, but every verse is there thoughtfully and for a very specific person, uh, purpose. You know, he's really a skilled writer and, uh, he gave his gospel structure and form. It's not really meant, I think, to be understood entirely as a chronological narrative, the kind of story that we would normally read, a novel or a, a, even a TV show, but rather as part of his structure, he arranges uh, Jesus' teaching and his ministry thematically. So let's let's talk a little bit about teaching because this, after all, has been called, Matthew has been called the teaching gospel. There's five discourses. The Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to in just a few weeks, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the most concentrated teaching of Jesus we have anywhere in the gospels. And, um, And then we will have after the Sermon on the Mount, we'll have Matthew 10, which is really the Sermon on mission as he sends them out. And then we have the parables, which which tell us how the kingdom works. And then Matthew, and that's uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 15 is is the life of discipleship in the kingdom. And then uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is the last discourse. Sometimes it's called the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives. And it's where he looks into the future. He begins to tell them what is coming. So these five discourses, you could think of them as a discourse on ethics, the ethics of the kingdom. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Discourse on mission. Discourse on the kingdom of God. Discourse on community, which is stronger uh, in Matthew than uh, I think in any of the other uh, three, uh, any of the four gospels, the other three. And then we have a discourse on, on end times. They concern all these aspects of the kingdom of God. Okay, we looked a little bit at structure I want to look at something that it is so important that you and I do not overlook, and that's the geographical, uh, political, social background of Matthew's gospel. We need to have an understanding of both the geography and the culture. You see, much of the gospel takes place in Galilee, and then the last— Eight nine chapters take place in Jerusalem and for Galilee and Jerusalem slash Judea, Jerusalem is of course the holy city that's in Judea, their culture and geography are very, very different and and, and i I think that if, if there's something you can pick up from this today, it's the context, understanding the background, the surrounding, is incredibly, incredibly important. So let's break it down for just a few minutes. The difference between Galilee and Judea, which, by the way, were about a four-day walk. (laughs) And we think, oh, that's not that far. Well, think of getting in your car for four days. In my case, that would put me on the east coast of the U.S. Um, So it's a long way. So the first difference I want to point out is uh, the difference racially. Galilee was uh, an area of the former northern kingdom and the northern kingdom which was called Israel in the old testament and the and Judea was the southern kingdom the northern kingdom way back in the 8th century was invaded by the assyrians a powerful powerful empire but what they did to subjugate their people when they would take over a territory, they would scatter those people. They'd move them a 1,000 miles away to another area and take people from a 1,000 miles away and put them in their area. So there was a dispersion, and it led to a, a very racially mixed area, the northern kingdom, Galilee. Um, the other thing about Galilee, besides that historical context from the 8th century, was that As an offshoot, there was an awful lot of Greek, non-Jewish towns and centers all around Galilee. So that would be a big difference from Judea, which was, of course, Jewish. Secondly is, geographically, uh, Galilee is separated from Judea not only by 70 miles, but by Samaria, another area that was very racially mixed because of the same conquest. And the Decapolis, which we're going to hear about the Decapolis a few times over the Gospel of Matthew. But um, the Decapolis was a largely a Greek or Hellenistic area. So there's another difference. Politically, Galilee— had been under separate administration for almost 900 years. It was, at least officially, under what's called a Herodian prince, Herod. Judea, on the other hand, was under direct Roman rule and had been for 150, 200 years. So even their politics, their whole worldview of what politics is, uh, was very different. Another difference, this is interesting. Galilee had really, really good agricultural land. And on top of that, the Sea of Galilee was great for fishing. It's very, very deep. And as a result, Galilee was really relative to the south, to Judea, was very prosperous. What happens when you've got one society that's prosperous and one that doesn't, isn't? The poorer one resents the richer one. It always happens that way. Now, it's interesting. Even though they were economically advanced, culturally, no way. The Judeans looked down on their northern neighbors, down on the Galileans. Uh, they were like uh, country bumpkins. It, uh, it, it was like the, the Beverly Hillbillies, if any of you are old enough to remember that. And, uh, and they just looked down on them. That's why it, it's interesting. If you look right near the end of uh, chapter one of John's gospel, uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, we've found Messiah and uh and he says where is he from he's from nazareth in galilee and he says you got to be kidding can anything good come from nazareth see they lacked sophistication and uh and and they were more open because of the geography to non-jewish influences let me give you one more difference i'm spending time on this cuz it's important for us to begin to understand the world of the first century, the world in which Matthew's gospel is written and is recording. So the last one is religiously. The Judeans thought that the Galileans were very lax in their observance of of ritual law. Now, can you see Jesus of Nazareth? Can you see a problem there? And you know, this was made worse uh, by the fact that that judaism was built around these key festivals every year and everyone would come well not all the galileans would come they they, they were so far away from jerusalem theological leadership in judaism was was laser focused in jerusalem so that's where what came out of the temple, the teaching that came out of the temple must be the best teaching, must be the right teaching. So we've got to be aware of these cultural differences and prejudices as we see the rejection of Jesus as the Christ by the people of Jerusalem, because that adds to the rejection. It's like someone coming from the Ozarks um, to New York City and saying, this is the way it is. It seemed almost like a foreigner. Jesus' accent, and we know Peter's accent, would immediately identify him as an outsider. Uh, And you know, they had all the common cultural prejudices that one culture has against the other. Um, They wouldn't receive him as a prophet because he was Galilean, uh, certainly not the Messiah, and, and they believed that that title of Messiah belonged to someone from Judea. I'm going to go outside of Matthew and give you an example from John 7, um, starting at verse 40. When they heard these words, teaching Jesus had just given, if anyone is thirsty, let him come, etc. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Hasn't the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? We're going to see in chapter 1 and 2, what's really known as the prologue of Matthew's gospel, how deliberate he is in making the link between the place of Jesus' birth, Judea, Bethlehem, and his upbringing, Nazareth. Remember, he was known not as Jesus of Bethlehem, but Jesus of Nazareth. So we've got to be aware of these obstacles as we're reading the gospel. Otherwise, we miss uh, important dimensions of what is going on, what Matthew is telling us. From the time that Jesus and the disciples began their journey southward, it's like a shadow falls over the narrative. Uh, This shadow, by the way, is the cross, because he knew where he was headed. Now, let's look at some of the major themes. The first, of course, is Christ. From the very beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, Matthew focuses on Christ, the person of Jesus, ministry of Jesus, passion of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus in the context of five names Messiah, more than any other gospel, he's called Messiah. Christ is simply the Greek translation. Son of David, Again, this is used far more by Matthew than any other gospel, and we'll show you why next week. Um, Lord, curious, which is applied specifically to Jesus uh, several times through Matthew's gospel. It was a confessional title in the early church, by the way. Son of man, Uh, this is Jesus' preferred title. But only Jesus uses this term. Isn't that interesting? He uses it about himself, but nobody else does. Uh, he's talk, he talks about himself as the son of man when referring to his ministry, the cross, his future vindication and glory. So this speaks of him, son of man, how he saw himself as the fulfillment of the suffering servant of the people, the one who came low to rescue. Son of God, more than David's son, more than the son of man, the son of God. Uh, In the very first chapter, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. The the climactic moment I referred to in in, uh, chapter 16, you are the son of the living God. So we're going to see that theme develop very intentionally through this gospel. The next theme is huge. It is the kingdom of God. It's the most overarching theme of Matthew's gospel. It's introduced in chapter 3 and, and carried through 36 times. Jesus came announcing the kingdom. His parables explained the kingdom. His miracles bore witness to the presence and reality of the kingdom. The context for understanding Matthew I think more than anything else is is the context of the kingdom of God and uh you know it's interesting because even say thirty years ago um, thirty five years ago, there was so little talk about the kingdom, so little understanding of the kingdom and yet and yet that is that's the That's the glue that holds this gospel together. That is the central theme. Matthew, you see, he's insisting that Jesus is the king who fulfills Israel's story and purpose. Kingdom. He talks kingdom all the time. The Greek word is basileia. I used to spend a lot of time teaching the church, starting maybe 32 years ago, about the kingdom. I felt like I was playing catch-up since about 1982, and I realized all around me, we need to get hold of this because it is at the center of what Jesus' gospel is. The kingdom expresses the ultimate sovereignty of God over his world. After that introduction, when I gave you structure, to right up to Matthew 4:16 4, 4:17 4, begins the new section he begins his ministry with the first thing he says the kingdom of heaven is here matthew usually used the term kingdom of heaven for his jewish audience it's synonymous with the kingdom of god he is announcing the inauguration of the long awaited kingdom it has come he says at other places, he says, it is coming, it is advancing. And yet other places, he says, uh, it is yet to be fully realized. We're going to look at what all of that means. The upside-down kingdom, the, the character of the kingdom is radical. It's a new order. It means good news uh, for the poor. The, the first shall be last, the last shall be poor. Um, it's it's nonviolence. It's losing your life to find it. The demands of the kingdom. We, we must first decide to enter the kingdom accepting it by its demands. Matthew 7 uh, talks a lot about this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the road is easy, leads to destruction. There's many who take it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's always been a challenging verse to me. And again, we'll look a lot more at that in the coming weeks. Another aspect of the kingdom in this introduction overview is spiritual warfare in the kingdom. The whole mission of Jesus, including his words, his deeds, his death, his resurrection, constituted an initial defeat of uh, Satan's powers that make the final outcome and uh, the triumph of the kingdom certain. Uh, this week, I've been doing a, a daily teaching um, on Passion Week, Holy Week, and as we've gone through that, we're seeing that that it more and more there's a battle. The cro- the cross is about a battle against the powers of darkness. So Jesus' message is that his own person, who he is, his mission, has invaded human history and has triumphed over evil. Even though the final deliverance will not occur until his second coming, the end of the age— but the kingdom is advancing. One of the things I used to teach all the time is that, that the activity of the kingdom, the manifestation of the kingdom, is such that with every healing, with every salvation, with every deliverance, every time the, the poor receive the mercy of the kingdom through food, water, whatever, every time that happens, tangibly the kingdom is forcefully advancing. Matthew eleven, twelve. Um, we must see all miracles in Matthew as manifestations of the kingdom. We're on the home stretch. The other theme is ethics. Matthew is considered without a doubt the most ethical of the four gospels. This is especially clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And the ethic of Matthew's gospel is a radical, uncompromising ethic of devotion and total dependence upon God. It makes us uncomfortable. We, we we either we try to work our way around it or we try to ignore it, but it confronts us head-on with a radical ethic of devotion. It calls for metanoia, which simply means uh, a call for repentance, which simply means uh, a change of direction, a change of heart. His his ethical demands, folks, we're going to be confronted with. They're, they're not very subtle. He said, for example, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Uh, he says, if anyone wants to become... My disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, he says that more often than any other saying in all of the Gospels. To be faithful to the text of the Gospel and not just study it and, and you know, massage it and manipulate it, to be faithful to the text of the Gospel, we must let Jesus' radical demands confront us with all the unnerving force which— that would they would have struck his first hearers? Are we surprised that people pressed in and other people scattered away? But but his words are not only the these uncompromising words, they're also filled with grace. I've been thinking the last two days about two verses in John's prologue, filled with grace and truth. They're filled with grace, grace for the weak grace for the sick, the poor, the powerless. (sighs) Jesus preached pretty hard to the religiously and socially arrogant, but this same Jesus expressed words uh, of comfort uh, to the meek and the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. The very last theme, which is huge, uh, is discipleship. And uh, it's interesting. The first recorded act of Jesus is to call to himself disciples. Come follow me, all the way back in Matthew 4.20. So, from now on, through his gospel— Matthew's narrative is about Jesus and his disciples, except when he sends them out on mission in chapter 10. They're with them always until chapter 26 when they suddenly desert him. So Matthew's story is about both the Messiah and the Messianic community. Of all four Gospels, Matthew's is the only one that writes about the church, the Ecclesia. Matthew did not write his gospel in isolation, but as a part of the church. Most historians think that out of something that Ignatius said that, that Matthew's home church was in Antioch, and so he was writing from a church context and to the church. I've always loved the way this gospel leads us into how Jesus made disciples, and uh, he dis- he formed disciples in three ways— instruction, he taught them, imitation, he said, watch me, now you do it, and inclusion. He he brought them into his life. Um, about a, uh, a year and a half ago, I wrote a book called The First Church Restored. If you're interested, you can get it on our Impact Nation site or at Amazon, and I lay out a whole book on how Jesus made disciples and how the early church did. So these are the, the main themes. He, we, we're going to get into gospel and law, um, where, where he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. But on the other hand, he, he says uh, five times in the following verses, you've heard it said, meaning Moses, but I say. And uh, so we're going to look at what that means. The last thing I want to say is mission. Matthew clearly states Jesus' mission at the beginning of his ministry, 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and sickness among the people. He called them to mission. When he said, come follow me, I'm going to teach you how to do mission. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. This mission theme culminates. It grows and grows and grows. And it culminates, of course, in the last few verses of Matthew 28, go into all the world making disciples. So we've covered a lot today. And as I said, next week, we will get into chapter one itself. So I've tried to lay a careful and hopefully strong foundation for the journey that we are embarking on. In preparing for this series, folks, I have purposely been drawing from a wide range of sources, uh, both historically, all the way back to about 100 AD, up to the 21st century, and and church tradition. I've drawn from, from mainline Protestant, from evangelical, from Catholic, from uh, Eastern Orthodox sources. Remember what I said two weeks ago when Tim and I did a discussion at the end of the first teaching? The river of God is wide, and we need to embrace the whole river because each stream carries unique riches. God bless you. I hope we've laid a foundation that makes sense to you. See you next week. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived.
0: We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Wow. <laughs> it's like drinking from a fire hose. That's a lot of stuff. That was a lot of stuff. It was good. Um, I have I have a question right off the bat uh, based on your just your last couple of points there, actually. Um, before we do that, we usually this would be the point where i kind of cut to an ad but this week if it's cool with you i kind of want to just spend a moment bragging on the impact nations family um t- truth be told i think i probably would have been doing an ad right now for a project we're about to carry out in uganda yeah but uh, th- we're done basically we're <laughs> <laughs> while you were teaching i was hitting refresh on the meter on our website there's uh i think we got a couple hundred dollars to go basically um let me just tell you about a short story, if you will. Um, on Monday, we talked to Trinity. He told us he's encountered a group of very, very sick people in a refugee camp in, uh, in Uganda that uh, were so hungry they were eating grass, boiling leaves, trying to get nutrition out of wild leaves. Uh, and he, he just promised them in faith. He says, I'm coming back at Easter to bring you food. And their response was,
1: <laughs> "What's Easter?" <laughs> I love and that. and
0: so he got even more excited because he said, "All right, we got some work to do. We got to present some gospel here." So anyway, that was Monday morning. Uh, we of got this week. You yeah, have this week.
1: We're talking three days ago. We, yeah,
0: we're currently on Thursday. So that was wow. Uh, yeah, wow. Okay, <laughs> and uh, we got to work here in the office. We you know. Uh, we recognize the need, and there are moments in, I said this earlier this week when I was talking with Trinity, but there are moments in Impact Nations history, you call them suddenlies, these moments where we just feel like the Holy Spirit says, that's, that's what I'm doing, that's what, I'm, that's what I want you doing. And so we just got busy going about the Father's business, and we put together a, a quick campaign and told the Impact Nations family, hey, we want to feed 400 families for one month. It was a $19,000 project, uh, and by the time I got home from work on Wednesday, we'd reached our goal of $19,000, which was 400 families fed for the entire month of April, getting food on Easter weekend. Uh, they don't even understand the significance of that yet, but they will. Um, and then somebody else called and said, ah, have I missed it? I, w- I want to contribute too. I'll I'll pledge, if Trinity can do more food, I'll pledge another 100 families in matching. So if, if for every dollar given for Thursday only, because <laughs> we gotta we have to get the money to Trinity by tonight, uh, so he can buy the food in time to deliver it. Uh, so for Thursday only, we did a 12 hour campaign uh, for another $4,800, which was being matched uh, to get us up to a maximum of another 200 families. And by golly, we're just about there! Uh,
1: wow, I'm so very, that's, we've got that's about six hundred families.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: thirty-six hundred people are not going to eat grass and leaves. Bingo! Yeah. Wow! Wow! And not for just Easter Day, but yeah, for for the month of April, a whole month.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, these folks are, by the way, they, we're talking tuberculosis, HIV, um, uh, diabetes, all sorts of pretty serious illnesses. Yeah. Um, when I was talking with Trinity earlier this week, he told me the story about when he was there and he, he gave the news to this very, very sick man who had not moved in days. He was, his body was so withered and worn and just exhausted, uh, suffering from tuberculosis. He was so sick he hadn't moved in days. And when Trinity prayed with him and said, we're coming with food, the hope that sprang up in this man caused him to get up and start moving about in ways that he hadn't in days and days just from the news oh, that that food was coming so
1: 1st Peter 1:3 he has given us a living hope mm, and we're to share that yeah
0: <laughs> so anyway that was in place of an ad this week i just i wanted to brag on the impact nations family so um
1: you guys are amazing you guys are amazing we're thank just, you so much
0: we it, thanks for <laughs> giving us the greatest job in the world eh? it's yeah, pretty really. cool it's so much fun so
1: this is even better than my dream job Which is playing second base for the New York Yankees.
0: (laughs) There's still time, Dad. You could get there. (laughs) Um, Hey, I'm just going to bring up on my phone some questions I jotted down as you were teaching today. The first one's a bit of a softball probably, but here we go. Uh, You finished up there talking about mission. You were talking about... uh, Matthew's, one of the themes of discipleship and how Jesus uh, was calling these disciples. He wasn't conscripting them uh, just to learn, but he was calling them into mission. Um, I can't help but notice, you know, we've basically been in class here for the last 50 minutes or so uh, studying the word. It, what's the danger of just getting stuck in classroom, in learning mode, and never actually moving into mission? And what can we do to guard against that?
1: Uh, there is a huge danger. And if if we just open our eyes and look around uh, the church over the last, take your pick, 100 years, 10 years, um, it's that we're much more comfortable with theory. mm mm-hmm. Because um, it's kind of like the way the Greeks thought. Well, it just just knowing something is its own value, yeah. and it was the Hebrews that said, "No, what you do is what you really know." Yeah. Uh, in uh, John four, Jesus said, "Don't don't say four more months, and then we'll get to the harvest. Don't say just another conference." Or, oh, we're on COVID, just another three books, <laughs> and then I'll be ready. Yeah. Um, that the other thing is, we learn by doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have fun with the, you know, just, I do what I say not to do. Uh, I'll give you a verse out of context. But he says to the religious people, go and learn. He didn't say learn and go. Wow. And uh, you recall growing up as we, Had churches that were out in the community all the time that uh, one of our favorite phrases was ready, fire, aim. Yeah. And uh, so it is a very real danger. I tell pastors, you know, I work with a lot of pastors around the world, Mm -hmm. and I tell them uh, one of the things I tell them is the longer you keep the people in the chairs, the harder it is to ever get them out of the Mm -hmm. chairs. Yeah. I don't want people to know any different. But what you meet Jesus and you follow him, you do the stuff. Yeah. Well, you
0: tell many stories about that very thing happening in India, uh, things like that, in your uh, book. Uh, First Church restored, mm-hmm. really, and talking about how Jesus made disciples, how the how the early church made disciples, and then modeling how that's happening happening right now in various places around the world. So, yeah. uh, if that's something that uh, our listeners are interested in in learning more about, I'd, I'd suggest you start there.
1: And we tried to make it really practical because at yeah. the end of every chapter, almost every chapter, I think maybe a dozen of them, I said, "Okay, how do we put this into practice?" Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Uh, you were talking about geography. I, I love getting some of that historical context of the culture and things like that. Your <laughs> your Beverly Hillbillies parallel was much appreciated. Actually, I think everybody can guess that one, <laughs> or or the Ozarks to New York City. Um, you know, during the Christmas season, we we hear a lot about Jesus' outsider status, uh, and even the outsider status of of the shepherds. It occurs to me, but just the nature of his having been born in a barn, uh, just the the poverty in which he's born into. But as you pointed out today, just culturally even, 30 years later as he's starting his ministry, he's really starting from a, a deficit, if you will, in terms of credibility uh, Absolutely. with his audience. My, my question for you really is, can, can you expand on that just a little bit? Tell me why that was really important for you to get that through to us today. What's the practical application for us today?
1: Well, in one sense... Um, let me answer it in two ways. It goes back to what Brad was teaching us and what I opened up the first week. Of, of we we need to look at things three D, multi layered, mm-hmm. and so when we're reading what's going on with the people around Jerusalem, when we're reading how things seem to be going so great in in Galilee, and then they get tougher and tougher. We need to understand not only spiritual forces, but cultural, political, racial forces that uh, are at work that we didn't maybe know about Mm because of the two different cultures. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, Well, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of applications. What I'm thinking about is that for us to be inclusive, for us to hear what God is saying, get out of our own narrow stream, hmm. uh, get out of Judea because God is saying stuff from the Decapolis and from Galilee and, and okay. so forth. Uh, I think it's important in terms of listening and learning from many streams in that yeah. way. But in doing life from many streams, you know, I'm being uh, I'm being intentional even with COVID lockdown. I'm being intentional in going out in my own city and connecting with folks socioeconomically racially from a very different background than mine. And it's tied into this whole issue of yeah. of us not living within stream. You know we're we're very ethnocentric um the the closer thing is, something is to what I'm used to, the more right it is. Yeah, you yes. and I know that taking teams around the world. Yeah. And uh, if it's like home, oh yeah, this is a great place. Yeah. And if it's not, something doesn't feel right here. I'm getting a bad yeah. feeling. <laughs> yeah. And we'll say that's not a bad thing, that's indigestion. You had too much hot <laughs> curry <laughs>
0: I I would say, practically speaking, you know, if if you look around, look around your small group, look around the people you spend a lot of time with. And if they all look the same as you, if they all think the same way as you, uh, then maybe it's time to go find some more friends. I was going to say some new friends. I don't mean discard those friends, but uh, you know, be intentional, be intentional. You know, I, uh, my wife and I have befriended a couple uh, who are new to our church. Who are just they live they live only fifteen minutes away from us, but they live like in a different world. They uh, they live kind of right at the edge of the desert, and they've yeah. they got a dune buggy, and they they just they've got like animals on their property and stuff like that. They come from a very very different socioeconomic background from us, uh, and it's been a joy to share our story with them and to learn from you know learn about their story and just begin to walk with the Lord together, uh, being unified in Christ, but enjoying the diversity and and really, uh, I think, growing because of that.
1: Yeah, I agree. It, it's rich, isn't it? It is. I, yeah. You've heard me say for years of your life that uh, I, talking about the poor, yeah. different socioeconomic, I need them away more than they need me. Yeah. I need those from diverse backgrounds Yeah, more than they need me. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we get what uh, your Uncle John used to say, when you get older, you get a hardening of the categories. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: you can punt on this if you're going to come back to it later in the mm-hmm. series, but you, you were kind of listing off many of the different titles that Matthew uses for Jesus. You yep. referred to the one that Jesus uses, only Jesus uses for himself, the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did he get that? What's the significance of it? And, like, was that a term familiar to his audience and to Matthew's o- audience? Like, did they know right away what he's referencing?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they did because uh, it is uh, it is a term that uh, I think Ezekiel is called, that um, – Matt, uh, Daniel's called, mm-hmm. uh, in some translations, even, uh, in the Psalms. Yeah. So I think it's a term that they understood.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I see the time and we should probably wrap up, but I, this is kind of a weird question probably, but you've seen the movie, the chosen, yeah. or the movie, the show, the series. I think they've just this weekend are about to release season two, which Ooh, we're really excited. We're going to start watching that with the kids, but, uh. Matthew is a very prominent character in the show, and he's kind of an odd dude. We would
1: say autistic, probably. Yeah, that's
0: the word I was going to use, yeah. Yeah. Is there something in the text that they got that from, or is that just the producers trying to add some color here?
1: Adding (laughs) color and broadening our categories Mm. that we realize that – because, you know, we say it's for everybody, but when we think about everybody, they look like us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think he's confronting us with that. I was talking with Brad Jerzek the other day about that. We were laughing yeah. about that presentation, but I think it's very intentional. Wow. That's good. Well,
0: uh, what's next
1: week? What happens next? Ooh. <laughs> next week I'm excited about um, because now we, we dig in and we're going to start with a passage that I read almost by rote for who knows how long. Twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And then as I started to go deeper and I started to look at what uh historical church fathers had to say, what the church understood, I realized that in those first seventeen verses, mm-hmm. which is the genealogy Yeah
0: I've been telling you about that recently. <laughs> um
1: he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching it. He's coming he's coming out of the gate running full tilt.
0: All right. I need some convincing. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Um, Folks, thank you so much for joining us for the Impact Nations podcast this week. It's been a joy to to be with you, to get this teaching, to even just this discussion has been so much fun. Uh, We do this every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time on YouTube Live. If you go to impactnations.com slash – no, sorry. (laughs) youtube.com slash impact nations get it right timmy uh you'll find us there you can also we catalog this stuff uh in a playlist so you can just go back and look at past episodes as well uh if you want to be notified of that, I would encourage you hit subscribe. Head to that YouTube.com/impactnations. slash Hit the subscribe button. Once you do that, a little bell pops up. You hit the bell, and you'll get notifications on your device telling you that we've gone live. Uh, we've already we've been live a whole bunch this week, actually. Yeah. Uh, so hit that button because you're missing out. You did. You've been doing. You alluded to uh, several kind of ten to fifteen minute teachings on the Passion Week. Uh, I had an interview with Trinity that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so you're missing out if you haven't hit subscribe. So YouTube.com. Slash Impact Nations. Hit subscribe, hit the bell. Um, if you like to listen to the podcast later yeah. on in the week, subscribe using iTunes, whatever podcast app you like to use. You can go to ImpactNations.com slash podcast. There's a bunch of subscribe buttons there, uh, and that'll just automatically download to your device each week. It'll be waiting for you. Uh, so you can listen to yeah, it on the way to I, work and stuff like that.
1: I had uh, somebody tell me yesterday, they've been listening to the podcast in the car on yeah. the way to and from work.
0: Yeah. And I've heard from those folks that they really appreciate the new setup here because the audio is uh, even better than when we used to crowd around in front of my whiteboard and have a single microphone that was far too far away. And now we don't have to worry about you pounding on the table either. So we've really upgraded. <laughs> uh Listen, folks, we're so glad you could join us. We're really looking forward to being with you again next week. God bless.
1: Bye-bye.